I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning, and uh, if you would please take them and uh, turn to the book of Matthew, the fourth, uh, fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. If you did not have, have an opportunity to bring your copy of God's Word with you, you should find one in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the tra same translation that I read from, the New American Standard Translation. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 today is the verse that we're going to focus on. This is the second message in our series of how to live life according to Jesus. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher in all the world, addressing some of the greatest subjects that you and I will ever deal with. I told you last Sunday, and I still believe it, that if we were to follow the principles that are laid out for us in the Beatitudes, which are the first uh, 10 verses of the fifth chapter, the Beatitudes of our Lord, you could apply those principles to any and every subject or problem that you might have and resolve it, solve it, if you'll follow those principles. That is, if both sides, if there are two parties involved in that, if both sides would follow the principles that are taught here in these Beatitudes, you could solve every problem and trouble that you will ever face in life. And I firmly believe that. So let's look at it. Today we're going to be looking at the second Beatitude, which has to do with comfort. And the title of the message, of course, is Comfort for a Broken Heart. Beginning with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You'll notice in verse 3, as we looked last Sunday at the poor in spirit, that has nothing to do with physical or material poverty. He's not saying that those who are poor in physical things or material things will be a part of the kingdom of God. It's a word or a symbol of wording for humility. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, referring to humility. So if you're humble before the Lord, and as I said, if you apply that principle to anything, if you are involved in a controversy or problem of some kind, those of you who are involved in that, in your particular situation, if you both follow the subject of humility and humble yourselves before the Lord and humble yourselves to one another, there's no problem or trouble that you could not resolve if you follow that principle. And then, of course, now we're looking at the subject of mourning. The word mourn here is used in the Greek language to refer to the deepest sorrow that you could experience, uh, primarily that of the loss of a loved one in death. And I suppose of all the things that we have to deal with, indeed, death is one of the most difficult that we have to face. And so this is a word that would be used throughout the scripture to talk about those who grieve deeply because they have experienced the loss of a loved one. But you know, that's not the only loss that we suffer. There are all kinds of things that we go through life losing. Uh, even a child will grieve and mourn because of something. Maybe, maybe their attachment to a pet, a dog or a cat or some other animal, and that animal gets lost or dies, that child will go through some, some form of grief. It may not be as deep and as lasting as perhaps the death of a loved one, but nonetheless, it's a loss for that child and they will experience uh, some, to some degree uh, a grief. Uh, it may be the loss of a job. You may get uh, lose your job, become unemployed. You, you may get a job and uh, promotion and it may mean that you have to leave where you live now and go to another place. 
You have to leave all of your friends behind and family members behind and go somewhere else new and different and it's all strange and you long for those days when you were there with your family or with your friends and now you feel like you've moved and you've lost all of them. Uh, so it could be a, a disease of some kind. You lose your health. You could have a bankruptcy. You lose all of your wealth. Uh, there are many kinds of losses that we experience. And the degree uh, to the grief and mourning that we go through will be determined by the degree of the loss that you experience. But all of us, from the oldest of us to the youngest of us, experience some kind of grief and mourning and weeping and crying. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived life to the fullest and lived it in a way that he fully understands everything that you and I will ever experience in life, says to us, blessed are those who are comforted, for they are those who are mourning, for they will be comforted. The word comfort here can also be translated encouraged. So even at the moment of death, when we lose a loved one in death, when we comfort someone, when the Lord comforts us, he encourages us. That's what he's doing. He's encouraging us, giving us hope when we lose something, a job or money or family or whatever, a pet, whatever it might be. The Lord encourages us. And we find throughout the scriptures that we are to encourage one another and that the Lord encourages us. So there is comfort for the brokenhearted. Now, there has never been an attempt by any biblical author of any book of the Bible uh, to tell us that God is giving us what is called a Pollyanna view of life. Pollyanna, you remember, was the main character of the book by that same name of the individual who had a foolish or blind, optimistic view toward life. The Bible doesn't do that. Sometimes we hear the song, pack up your troubles in the old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. You'll never find anything like that in the Bible. The Bible gives us life in its all, all of its fullness, its reality. And one of the realities of life is that you cry, that you shed tears. And I've often said to people, especially at, at a time of a funeral, I, I will make reference to the fact of the tear ducts. All of us have tear ducts. Tear ducts is that part of our eyes and our face that allows us to shed tears when we, when we grieve. And, and I believe that the tear ducts are to the soul what a, um, uh, 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 in a pressure cooker, a, tear, a, a water, a, spring, a steam valve is to a water, uh, to a, a I'll get it right here in a minute. <coughs> you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> the little thing on the, on the, on the pressure cooker, the, the, the jiggler that goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you, now I'm with you. If it wasn't for that little jiggler, uh, that, that steam, that pressure cooker would explode. All the steam and the pressure that builds up in a pressure cooker will explode if it doesn't have a way to escape. And, and I believe that the tear ducts are the pressure valves of the soul. That uh, you've, you've got to have a way to release and relieve yourself of the pressure and the tense and the grief that you're experiencing, and if you try to hold it in, you're going to explode on the inside. And so I believe that the Lord has given us the ability to shed tears so that we can relieve some of that pressure and stress that we are under. Where did we ever get the idea that there's something foreign about tears in life? Why do we think that tears are a sign of weakness or that they're demonstrating a lack of courage or faith in the Lord? 
When you look at the Bible, you'll find from Genesis to Revelation, people all over the Bible expressed tears. Abraham, for example. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation and so forth. When his beloved wife, Sarah, died, the Bible says that Abraham wept for his wife, Sarah. When King David's son, Absalom, was killed, the Bible tells us that, that David went to the upper room in order to weep. And as he went there, he said to himself out loud, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, if it had been I who had died rather than you. Oh, Absalom, my son Absalom, my son, my son. And so David wept for his son, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet is known as the weeping prophet. And when you read the prophecy of Jeremiah, you'll find several references to him weeping and crying and grieving for the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, there was a woman uh, whose lives had been changed by the Lord Jesus. And you find her coming into a home and, and she bathes the feet of Jesus with her tears and wipes them dry with the hair from her head. The Lord Jesus himself wept. You remember in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, he went to the tomb of his dear beloved friend Lazarus. The shortest verse in the Bible, you know, John 11:35. 35, Jesus wept. And then, of course, that was the time when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he struggled about the cup of the suffering that he was going to have to, uh, to, to drink from and how he begged the Father to allow him to, to bypass that. If it be your will, Lord, uh, Father, uh, let me pass this cup and not drink it. And yet it was not the Lord's will. And it said that great drops of sweat and blood poured from his face and his body as, as though it were drops of sweat and perspiration. Jesus wept. Peter, Simon Peter, uh, wept. You remember when he denied the Lord uh, three times and after the third time and he heard that rooster crow, uh, the Bible says that uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly, bitterly. On the first resurrection morning, uh, the women who went to finish uh, the embalming process of bathing the body of Jesus and so forth, uh, when they got there, discovered that the stone had been rolled away and that the body of Jesus was no longer there. Mary Magdalene stayed behind as the other women left and, 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 and she began to weep and to cry. She did not recognize Jesus when he spoke to her and, and she thought he was, the, he was the gardener. So her tears uh, 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 caused her to not be able to identify Jesus among other things. And, and so she wept, she wept. The apostle Paul talks about how he for three years, day and night, ceased not to, to grieve for the people, his own people, the people of Israel, and how he wept for them day and night as he tried to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. The Bible never asks us to pretend that we don't hurt. It doesn't tell us to pretend that there's no sorrow in life. The Bible encourages us to express our grief and our, and our sorrow through uh, the expression of tears and, and the weeping of our loved ones. There is a verse of scripture that I want you to turn to, and that is in the Psalms. Psalm 56 and verse 8. Psalm 56 and verse 8. Psalm 56 and verse 8. 
Psalm 56 and verse 8 says, You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Now, that is a powerful verse of Scripture that tells us that God watches over us and it says that he takes account of our wanderings, that is. He keeps track of us. He follows us wherever we go. We are his. We belong to him. He loves us. He oversees us. He watches over us. Over us. The Bible says that he marks the steps of a good man. There's no place where you can go. There is nothing that you can experience in life but what the Lord is keeping track of what's going on in your life. And furthermore, he says in the passage of Scripture, that when you grieve, he collects your tears in his bottle. He has a bottle of your tears. And I don't know what he's going to do with them. Someday I'm sure he'll bring them out and do whatever he needs to do with them. But the Lord collects the tears that you shed in your life. He keeps those tears in a bottle. He cares intimately about you. Every detail of your life is recorded in God's book of care and of compassion. Jesus said that the spirit of the Lord was upon him and that he had been sent to heal the brokenhearted and the reason why Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted, he could do that because he himself was brokenhearted. He was broken over your sorrow, over your grief, over your sins in your life. Jesus can and does heal the brokenhearted. There is a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 that says that Jesus would be a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief. So Jesus is very much in empathy and sympathy with you. He knows what you experience and he knows what it means to be brokenhearted and to be crushed. There is another verse of scripture in the Psalm, Psalm 147 and verse 3 that says... He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I want, I want you to turn to a New Testament book this time, uh, to, the, to the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this is the story uh, that Jesus told that we know as the Good Samaritan. And I hope that I'm not uh, violating any scriptural principle here. Uh, in, in saying what I'm about to say regarding this. This is a story uh, that Jesus told that we know as the Good Samaritan. Uh, that this man went on a journey. Uh, he fell among thieves uh, who, who robbed him, beat him up, left him for dead. Along came these individuals, a, a priest and so forth, a rabbi, a Levite and all so forth. And, and they looked over and saw this man in a ditch and he was dying and all beaten up and bloody and everything. They didn't stop to, to help him. And so they went on their way. They had other things they considered to be more important. And so they didn't help. But then along came this Samaritan. Now, the, the kind of the kicker, if I might use that term about this parable, is that a Samaritan was greatly despised by the Jewish people. They were what we would call a half-breed. 
uh, half Jewish and half some other thing. And, and so they were looked down on, despised by the Jewish people. And so yet Jesus takes this man, a Samaritan, and uses him to teach a great lesson. And how this Samaritan stopped, got down off his donkey, got down in the ditch with the man and, and, and uh, put oil in, in his wounds, poured oil in his wounds and, and then bound up his wounds and put him on his donkey, took him to the uh, Holiday Inn and, and spent with him overnight with him and, and uh, took care of him through the night. And then when he got ready to leave the next morning, gave the, the, the proprietor some money and he said, now this should cover uh, your expenses. And if you spend more than what I'm giving you, you keep a record of it. And when I get back, I'll reimburse you on all of it. And he, of course, taught the lesson and said, which one is your neighbor? And of course, they said, well, the one who ministered to the guy that was in need, the one who was in need. And he said, well, go and do thou likewise. That's the story that is told here. But I don't know, for some reason this morning, as I was reading over this, the Lord just kind of spoke to my heart and said, you know, that's really a picture of Jesus. It really is. Look at it with me. Verse 30, Luke chapter 10. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and we saw him. He felt compassion, came to him. Uh, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them and put them on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then down in verse 35, the last part of verse 35 says the, that the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, when I return, I will repay you. And what the Lord was speaking to my heart about is when you come to verse 33, notice the steps that Jesus has taken to care for you and me. In, in verse 33, it says and that Jesus, uh, if we use the term Jesus here, that he was on a journey. Well, he was. He, he came into this world on a journey. He called it a mission. The Father has sent me, he said. So Jesus came into this world on a mission, on a journey. But notice what it says. He came upon him. Well, the Lord's looking and seeking for people. He has come to seek and to save those which are lost. And when he saw him, he, had, he felt compassion. Well, our Lord has felt compassion on every soul that's ever been born into this world or ever will be born. The Lord looked upon you with compassion. He loves you. He cares about you. He sees you. He's tracking every step that you take. He knows every thought that you have, every word that you're going to say, everything that you're ever going to do. He keeps track of everything you do that goes on in your life. And he has compassion on you. Look at verse 34. He came to him, bandaged up his wounds. Well, what did the psalmist says? He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's what Jesus does. When you have a wound, it may be psychological, sociological, physically, mentally, physically, your illness or whatever it might be, whatever emotional problem you might have. You're hurting on the inside. Your heart is breaking or has been broken and you're grieving and you're struggling. And Jesus knows that. And if you'll turn to him as the great physician and the good Samaritan, he'll bind up your wounds He'll heal your broken heart. He loves you. It says in verse 34, he came to him, bandaged up his wound, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Took care of him. The Lord takes care of you if you allow him to. 
He's the great physician. He's the great provider. We just sang in one of the hymns that Andre led us and the choir led us in, talking about the Lord being our great provider. Uh, his grace is sufficient. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that 23rd Psalm goes on to list the ways and the things that the Lord does to meet the needs that are in your life. And then notice also it says down in verse 35, when I return, I will pay you. Talking about maybe, and we'll look at this in a moment, the Lord has left you here in order to be a comfort to somebody else. And it may be to a certain extent, uh, some expense that you might have to put out to take care of that individual. The Lord keeps track of that. He's got it in his record book. One of the things the Lord's going to do when you stand before him as a believer at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Christ, he's going to open that book up and he's going to reward you for everything that you've done for him. He'll pay you back. He will. It says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And he does that every single day of your life. I want you to take your hymn book here. We'll, we'll get to the rest of this. This is all introduction. This is the front porch. We're going to get inside the house in a minute. But take your hymn book and turn to number 415. Number 415. It's a, it's a hymn written by Daniel Whittle called Moment by Moment. Hymn number 400. We're not, we're not going to sing it. I just want to really point out two stanzas to you about this song. If you notice at the bottom of the page on 415 that is written by Daniel Whittle. It goes back to 1893 at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Daniel Whittle was there and with his friend, Henry Varley. And Henry Varley, they were talking about spiritual things and songs. And Henry Varley said to Daniel Whittle, I don't like the hymn that says, I need thee every hour. And Whittle kind of looked at him and said, well, what do you mean you don't like the hymn, I need thee every hour? He says, well, I need him every moment of every day. Not just every hour. There's nothing wrong with that song. I love that song too. I need thee, oh, I need thee. How I need thee every hour. Well, I need the Lord every hour, but I like this too. I don't only need him every hour. I need him every moment. Notice what it says in stanza two and stanza three. Never a trial that he is not there. Never a burden that he does not bear. Never a sorrow that he doth not share. Moment by moment, I'm under his care. Never a weakness that he does not feel. Never a sickness that he cannot heal. Moment by moment in woe or in will, Jesus my Savior abides with me still. Moment by moment I'm kept in his love. Moment by moment I've life from above looking to Jesus till glory doth shine. Moment by moment, O oh Lord, I am thine. Oh, I love that song. Moment by moment, Jesus we're kept in his care and he loves us. He has compassion. He binds up our wounds. You take your problems and your heartaches to Jesus and you will find comfort. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the nick of time. In the nick of time, he's never late, he's never early. God is always right on time to help you with whatever it is that you're struggling with. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Robert J. Hastings. Dr. Hastings, before he passed away, was in our church. I invited him to come and share with us one Sunday. Some of you may remember him. 
At the, t at the time he was retired as the editor of the Illinois Baptist State Paper in the state of Illinois, uh, I came across some of his writings and I subscribed to the Illinois Baptist State Paper just so I could get his editorials. He's written about 20 books in his lifetime and one of my favorite is, is the, the book that he wrote on the, on the Beatitudes called Take Heaven Now. And if you want to uh, Google his name, uh, there's a, a little writing that he, he wrote called The Station. Uh, Robert, just Google Robert J. Hastings, The Station, and read that. I'll, I'll leave it at that. You, you can look it up yourself. But he, in his book, Heaven, uh, Take Heaven Now, this is what Robert Hastings said. Here is a truism of life. One can never be comforted unless he first weeps. Tears cannot be dried until they are first shed. Rainbows never form in tearless eyes. The person who keeps his emotions, particularly grief, pent up on the inside, never finds release and comfort. He will nag and aggravate and tantalize until his dying day. But he who sows in tears will reap in joy. He may even discover also that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Oh, I walked a mile with, sorrow, with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and never a word, said she, but all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You'll learn a lot too if you'll turn it over to the Lord Jesus and allow him to comfort you. Now, quickly, in the moments that remain, let's see what the needs are, the need for comfort, and the means of comfort. The need for comfort, threefold, sorrow for your own sins. I mentioned this last week about our crying over our sins. How long has it been since you were brokenhearted over the sins that you've committed, how you've grieved the heart of God? Every time we sin, we grieve the heart of God. And it says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what he's saying here is not that, that it's, God is also brokenhearted over our, our sins, but uh, we need to be as well. And if we will be broken spirited and broken in our heart over our sins, that pleases God. As Hastings said, uh, you, you cannot dry tears if you don't ever share, shed them. Uh, you never see the rainbow if you don't shed the tears. And God will wipe away the tears. If you, and and how, how do you get the Lord's help? Being brokenhearted, broken and contrite heart. The words broken and contrite literally means crushed, crushed. Uh, Billy Graham also has a book on the Beatitudes in, in which he made the comment that, uh, that we can never... He says, the power of the atom was never discovered until they learned how to crush an atom. You just think about that for a moment. Think how powerful and explosive an atomic bomb is. But in order for there to be a, an atomic bomb, that little atom, little, you can't even see it with a naked eye. But it has to be crushed. You have to break the atom in order to get the power. And Graham says that that's what happens to us in life. We have to, the Lord has to break us. We have to be brokenhearted before we can experience the power of the Lord and before we can become strong in the Lord. 
in the Lord. And so we need to cry over our sins. It breaks God's heart. It ought to break your heart. But not only the sorrow for one's own sins. The second thing, sorrow for the sins of others. Sorrow for the sins of others. Maybe you have a husband or a wife or a child or a parent who's lost. Or they're rebellious or they're hateful and mean and they abuse you or whatever. Do you pray for them? Do you pray for that daughter or that son or that grandchild that's wayward and rebellious? You may think about them, but do you ever call their name before the throne of grace? Do you remember what the people of Israel asked of Samuel? They said, Samuel, don't ever stop praying for us. And Samuel's reply was, God forbid that I should ever cease to pray for the people of Israel. Paul was brokenhearted over the people of Israel. And he, and, and he talked about how he, he shed tears for the nation of Israel, his own beloved people, and, and for the sins that they have committed. The Bible instructs us that we are to pray one for another. So maybe you need to get some lost people on your heart. Maybe a relative. It may be a friend. It may be somebody that you work with. Somebody at school or just your neighbor, whomever it may be, that they don't know the Lord. Do you pray for them? Do you, are you brokenhearted over their sins? The God will comfort you if you will be broken about not only your own sins, but the sins of other people as well. And then the third one, the way, of course, that we grieve is through death. And the Lord will comfort us if we will allow him to do so. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So in your time of grief, in your time of sorrow, when you, when you lose a loved one, a spouse or a, a child or a parent or whomever it may be, the Lord will comfort you if you'll allow him to. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And, and listen to what it, what it says. And, and I read this a lot of times at funerals or maybe at a graveside. It's very comforting over the loss of a loved one. Listen to what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Now the word asleep in the Bible is never used in reference to the soul. It's always used in reference to the body. In death, it's the body that goes to sleep. The soul is released from the body. And if, it's, and if you're a Christian, your soul goes to heaven to be with the Lord. Your body is left behind. So it's the body that sleeps. The word cemetery comes from a Latin word that is translated also for a hotel. What do you do on a, in a hotel? Well, m most people, they don't go there permanently, just temporarily. Maybe you're on a trip. Maybe just for one night. You check into a hotel. You go there to rest, to recuperate. You get up the next morning and, and continue on with your journey. Well, what happens in a cemetery? Well, brother, that's not a dead-end street. Uh, there's a hole. It's got an opening one day. <laughs> the cemetery, you're only going to be there temporarily. Don't take permanent residence there. <laughs> Someday Jesus is coming back. And every grave and every cemetery and in the entire world and even bodies that have disintegrated in the in a, in a foxhole somewhere and blown to pieces or in the, in the ocean that was consumed. Hey, the atoms are still there and God put it together the first time and he's not going to have any trouble bringing it back again. And, and Paul saying, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. Or the King James said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. 
It's kind of like the unclaimed blessing, the lady who never got married, and her claim was, I didn't want to have those ignorant brethren. <laughs> You'll get that in a minute. Either. But it's the, it's the body that sleeps, not the soul. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who've died. He, he says, Go on, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For with this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, it's not my word, Paul's saying. It's, I'm telling you by the word of the Lord. This is what God says. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And it concludes by saying, therefore, comfort one another. With these words. So in your time of grief. When you've lost a loved one. You let the Lord comfort you. Quickly now. Let's go to the means of comfort. How can we, how can we be comforted. And there's four of them. And I just only have time to briefly mention them. But first of all God's word. Let God's word comfort you. Comfort you. In Psalm 119 and verse 25, the living Bible says, I am completely discouraged. I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. Listen, folks, how many times I sound like a broken record. I'm saying to you that this book, the Bible, is a living book. It's alive. And, and you read it. it. It has life in it. And you, it gives you life. And it will revive you. I've often been asked, what is your favorite passage of Scripture? And I have a difficult time responding to that kind of question because there are so many passages in the Bible. I love the whole book. It's just hard for me to pick out one verse that, that tops the others. But there are some that, that I do. 23rd Psalm, I love 23rd Psalm. John chapter 14, I love that one. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I guess if I were to pick one, says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not unto your own understanding but in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's one of my favorite, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And, and then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where Paul begged the Lord to take the thorn away from him and God wouldn't do it. He said, but my grace is sufficient for you. And my, how many times I've turned to that verse of scripture and found indeed that God's grace is sufficient for whatever it is that I'm experiencing in that time. Romans chapter 8, I love Romans chapter 8. I call that the security chapter. It begins with, there, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It concludes with no separation. Who can separate you from the love of God? For I am persuaded that height nor depth or every creature and so forth can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8 begins with, 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 uh, with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in between, you've got security. From verse 1 to the very end of the book. It's a book about security. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a book about the resurrection body. That someday we're going to have resurrection. There's all kinds of verses here and in the Psalms. And then there was one particular verse of scripture when I was, when I was going through a very difficult time. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 47 where David, little David, was standing in the presence of Goliath. And he looked at old Goliath and he says, the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you to me. And man, what strength and encouragement I got from that verse of scripture as I was going through that very difficult time. I wish that you had gone with me to the seminary back in the early years of my ministry. 
I was privileged to sit down at the feet of some tremendously godly people at the seminary in Fort Worth. One of those individuals was a, a, a preacher of, of uh, a professor of preaching, Dr. H.C. Brown. Uh, he was a great godly man. His wife died. And as a way of expressing his grief, he wrote a book entitled, A Search for Strength. This is what he said. Through the years, I have attempted to face troubles and difficulties by securing strength through private fellowship with God. For me, the quickest path to private fellowship with God is through the Bible. God speaks to me through the Holy Scriptures in times of happiness as well as in times of sorrow. He found his strength from the reading of God's Word. You can do the same. So God's word will be a source of strength for you. Secondly, God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 13, from the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in your faith that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your whole life and outlook may be radiant with hope. So Jesus said, I go back to heaven to your advantage that I do so. When I get to heaven, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will always be with you. And he's able to do that in the person of the Holy Spirit. You must realize, I, I hope you understand, that when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God came and took up residence in your heart. And there will never be a time that you'll be alone You'll never be alone. Wherever you go, Jesus will be with you. And he will teach you. Jesus said in the 14th chapter of John's gospel, he will teach you and bring to your remembrance everything that I have taught you. So you are never alone. There may be times when you feel lonely, but you will never be alone if you are a child of God because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. So you've got God's word. You've got the Holy Spirit. The third thing you have is Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection, especially if you're dealing with the loss of a loved one or when it comes time for you to face death yourself, if you know that it's coming and you have time to prepare for that. What better hope do we have than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're hopeless people. We're pathetic. People ought to feel sorry for us for we're fools for believing that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead if indeed he has not been. But Paul goes on to remind us that he is the first fruits of many more who are to follow. Jesus said, because I live, you too shall live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So we have the wonderful hope, man, when we die, when we walk down the valley of the shadow of death, it's not over. We simply leave this world to go into the very presence of God and someday Jesus is coming back and we'll come with him. Our bodies will be resurrected. They'll go through a transformation. We'll get into our new glorified bodies, live with Jesus forever and ever and ever for all eternity, doing everything that he's ever planned and designed for us, world without end. Man, what better hope do you have than to know that Jesus lives and because he does, you too, too. And then, of course, the final way that you can get comfort, of course, is through the comfort that comes from other people. In 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, we go on to say, well, verse 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's kind of a play on words there for comfort. God comforts you so that you in turn can comfort other people as they go through a similar thing that you're going through. You need to be careful when you do that. You should never say to a person, especially if you don't know what they're going through, to say, well, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. You know, I could, I could never say that to a woman who maybe has lost a, a, a premature child. Uh, and and I, can't, I don't know what they, I know they're grieving and my heart goes out to them, but I, can, I, I cannot say to them, I know what you're going through. I don't know what they're going through. I can't say that to a person who's had cancer. I've never had cancer. I've had heart trouble, and I can tell you that. But uh, for a person, I, I, can, I can at least identify and say, well, uh, you know, the Lord knows what you're going through, and the Lord will comfort you. And, and, and I maybe can tell something that I had to go through and say, well, you know, the Lord comforted me, and his grace is sufficient. He can help you as well. We need one another. The Bible tells us comfort one another. The Bible says pray for one another. The Bible says love one another. And we're to do that. And we get comfort ourselves when we comfort other people and, and when they comfort us when we go through our very difficult, difficult times. Well, my time is up. But let me end with a quote from Warren Wiersbe who said, Jesus never tried to escape the sorrows of life. Neither did he deny that they existed. He transformed them. Of itself, sorrow never makes a person better. I have seen it make people bitter. I have too. You know, sorrow doesn't necessarily make you better. Sometimes it makes you bitter. But Warren Wiersbe went on to say this, but sorrow plus Jesus can bring a transforming power into your life. You need Jesus. Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for teaching us how to live. Thank you for never forsaking us, never turning your back on us like the good Samaritan. You have crawled down into the ditch with us. You've become one of us. And when you saw us and saw that we were in need, you reached out to us and ministered to us and have and continue to do so. You can identify with us because you've experienced all of life. You know what it's all about. You know how to live it triumphantly. Teach us, Lord. May we sit at your feet and learn from you. Bless now this time of invitation. Should there be those who need to make decisions, encourage them, Holy Spirit, lead them to do your good and perfect and acceptable will. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, and come if the Lord is dealing with you.